0: environment and climate change since 2011, and the idea to start with this morning was to discuss the topic that we have for today, migration, climate, environment, how are they linked, and so to fit in my 10 minutes, I will try to give you five key messages about how they are linked, and then five key, uh, let's say, challenges and opportunities for an international, for the action of an international intergovernmental organization <coughs> such as IOM that has 157 members today. So my first part, key 5 let's try five key messages about how are they linked, and it's difficult because they are linked in many different ways. So the first key message about how are they linked is that it's a we speak about multi-causal and multi-dimensional reality as soon as we touch these topics together. Because environment and climate as an aggravator of already environmental existing settings is just one of the factors that drives pull or push factor of migration. So it's very difficult to disentangle the environmental and climatic factors from other factors, in particular social, democratic, demographic, political, economic, but still it's there. And the important key message about this is that we need to look at it in a very specific way and to understand better how these factors drive migration strategies and policies. Second way about how they are looked, it's that we can look at human mobility and climate and environment as a barometer of people's vulnerability or people's resilience. So along the migration, the migration you can read it like a barometer of increased risk, vulnerable populations, so more vulnerability, more trafficking whenever there is a migration route happening, and on the opposite, increased empowerment, increased uh, resilience of population, because they run out of the harm's way because it means adapting to new situations, it means sending remittances back. <coughs> so second key message, we look at it as a barometer, according to the manufacturers. Third way they are linked, I think we have to say that there are many faces as soon as we speak of migration and climate. We talk about internal migration in majority, but also international migration and a lot of regional migration. We talk about Short distances, displacement due to disaster sometimes is just next door and it's still migration in relation to climate and natural disasters. Or we talk about going very far away. We talk about circular migration and temporary migration and we talk about permanent migration. And when we look at climate projections of the intergovernmental panel for climate change, there are zones that will be inhabitable because they will be too hot for instance. So all this population will be affected. It doesn't mean they will all just migrate and come and knock at our doors, but they are affected, and migration might be one of the strategy in response to being affected by climate change. Fourth way, and also in, in in the many facets, I think we have to look also on the fact that it can be forced forms of migration and voluntary forms of migration. So it's a response fleeing to natural disasters, (coughs) floods, but also a longer term constraint type of choice. If desertification makes change of living or ocean gets more acid, you might not have really a choice, you'll have to move, but it's still part of a voluntary strategy to move. So third key message, the many facets of migration. There's no one way to look at it. You have to always look at all these ways and to have policies that address all these ways. Four key message about how they are linked, I think we have to look at the terminology. So who do we speak of? We speak of environmental migrants, we speak of climate migrants, can we speak of climate migrants or is it climate that affects livelihoods, impacts migration and then it's maybe climate induced but not really climate migration. One of the things that we work on and with UNHCR So it's not to use the climate refugee, an environmental refugee terminology, because it's misleading, because no one can have a status as a refugee because of persecution of climate change. The Geneva 51 Convention does not allow it. So I think we have to be extremely careful not to put everything in one big bag. And the media love the climate refugee, but the whole work we do is to try to inform the debate about what's real, what's not, and what category are available in terms of migration policy choices. In the same um, key message about terminology, there's also the fact that there's no square legal uh, definition of migrants and that many different <laughs> branches of law apply to migration and also that environmental migrants don't fare, fall squarely in any type of legal definitions. Also because the majority of this migration again is internal, so we talk more about rights-based approaches than of refugee law. So I think that's also the terminology and the legal dimension, it's a key dimension of how they are linked. And the last book, like how they are linked, key message I wanted to give before moving into what IOM does and the intergovernmental dimension, it's the whole question of research, data, evidence, projections. This is maybe where we'll have responses that are more specific about how they are linked, but it's also where you size the complexity of the issue. For instance, we have good data on internally displaced people. Thanks to internally displaced monitoring center with whom IOM has a memorandum of understanding about data provision. Uh, We have internally displaced, um, uh, I don't know if you know IDMC, do you know IDMC? So they do every year um, a report about internally displaced people and this report um, also allows comparison with conflict displaced people. But it's, it's quite difficult to, to to compare the two because the methodologies are different. So you see immediately you enter the complexity of the topic. These are people that are newly displaced <coughs> by natural disasters yearly. This last year, 22 million people displaced. But it doesn't take into account drought. It doesn't take into account desertification. It doesn't take. There we'll have to speak of other types of data from these projections. And there are scary projections about as many million of people live in the delta of the Nile, they will be all underwater, they will all have to move. As many people live in small islands, all on the water, all have to move. But the reality of migration is not that all will just have to move like this. Many people will move for labour ish uh, reasons far beyond before the sea level rises. Nevertheless, level rises; it's a reality, and these people will be affected. So again, our projects and activities and policy have to take this into account. The second part of what I wanted to to say today is the to, this key, like to summarize key uh, five key opportunities that, of course, are in fact challenges. That you uh, that an international governmental organization like IOM that it's an Big international organization, but that's not part of the UN, but it's affiliated and has a worldwide presence with offices around the world and over 80,000 people working for IOM to date. How an intergovernmental organization mandated on migration works on environmental and climate-induced <coughs> migration. So, the first key message I wanted to give you about our work is that it's presents a very interesting and unique situation that in IOM, a lot of work started bottom-up and due to the reality on the ground at operational level. It's an organization that has a culture of operation and of action. <coughs> so it's on the field that, for instance, Uragan Mitch 98, a huge natural disaster with huge implication of displacement, called the response, that it's more a humanitarian type of response to this kind of event. And then it started to be lots of responses to many different natural disasters that after it's all the organization within the UN cluster system where each agency has a specific role, but it grew up from the reality that environment impacts migration and we have no choice but to act on the fact that environment and climate influence migration. On the other side, you have a very big international organization that tries to really conceptualize and that knows migration. And it tries to really understand how this operational work can fit with the whole policy and thinking debate. So the organization has made a huge effort in partnership with many other organizations to produce research, to (coughs) conceptualize the whole environmental migration debate, to offer tools and knowledge and information and policy space for dialogue to states to discuss this topic. So it's a very unique situation that it's very positive and it's very challenging because if you are growing from operations and you talk to organizations that look only at policy, there's a, still a very big gap between the policy discourse and the reality of operation. And though you say this is what the reality is and we have to address it, to be able to bring this up to the policy dialogue, it's very difficult. And it's one of our key challenges today at RM, is to bring this wealth of real knowledge we have at the policy debate. For this you have to also have funding and it's complex. The second big challenge I wanted to mention to you, it's what I call the double sensitivity challenge and opportunity. So not only we talk about migration, where it's so complicated to have an international framework, speaking about international migration, but we speak also of climate, which is also very complicated and controversial. Only if you look at the climate negotiation we have right now, and all the climate justice mm-hmm. issue, and how human mobility and loss and damage fit into the whole climate justice, it's very complicated. So I think really that an organization that's intergovernmental has as a role to also support the work that helps you go over the two sensitivities, though it's very challenging because often you end up with the lowest common denominator because that's how states end up by having an agreement on a topic. Though I think it's a key action of IOM is to overcome the double challenge and it goes through very, very technical and specific activities we have. Third key challenge opportunity, it's what I call the three-pronged approach. So we have to bring climate into migration debate. So into regional consultative processes, into bilateral discussion, into multilateral discussion. In our council, we just have a lot of events (coughs) in that. Second, we have to bring migration into big international processes. So in the climate negotiations, in the disaster risk reduction debate, in the humanitarian debate, in the development, And third, we also have to treat environmental migration as a standalone topic that has its own um, issues and responses. So that's also, I think, one of the key roles of IOM, is to be able to bring in these three ways the topic. Fourth, uh, key challenge and um, uh, opportunity is to look at migration simply in a different way. So, to look at environment, migration, climate, not only as an issue of despair, when nothing has worked, when everything is finished, you move because nothing else has worked, but to look at it in a positive way, migration as a possible strategy of adaptation, migrants as possible really actors of adaptation to climate change, and we can see now that we have new partnerships, for instance, with the United Nations Convention to Combat Desertification, a new generation of projects. For instance, diaspora and investment into adaptation and land-based adaptation that show that there is an awareness at policy level, but that can be translated into concrete actions that show that migration can be a positive adaptation strategy. And my last key challenge and opportunity I think that it's very important to realize that we talk now about the governance of in, at international level of environmental migration and that that's a new area of <coughs> interest of policy <coughs> for the government, for the research community as well. There are key issues about who funds what. Is it development, is it humanitarian? How do you fund research? I mean, we are at IOM faced daily with how do we fund the activities we want to promote because you have to have the awareness and the access to adaptation funds to fund human mobility uh, type of projects. So there is competition at international level and there is cooperation and I think that we see it now at IOM's level <coughs> that the organization has been very pioneering about migration, environment and climate change and has really contributed to bring it on its own agenda and on the international agenda. And when this starts to be in a way successful, and I use successful like this because it's about people who are (laughs) uh, in in situations that are very difficult, so that's nothing successful about it. But the topic at policy level is successful and takes visibility, it means that many different actors start to also act, which brings action higher up, But for the International Organization of Migration, there's a real question of the role of the organization on this international governance. And I think part of our response is to really work with states on developing their capacities through trainings to tackle these issues concretely. It's to work with civil society, because I think that's key for governments to engage with the civil society through an international organization and to continue our work but in collaboration with all the many partners and competitors. So that's it from my side, thank you.
1: So what I'd like to do is look at a few of the research trends that I think um, have emerged perhaps over the last 10 years and I'm not going to go into each Trend or each area of research in a huge amount of detail because actually I'm I'm not an academic I'm I work for civil society I'm a I'm an advocate um, but what I want to do is explore how those changes in research how those kind of new conclusions that have been reached in academia have shaped the way that civil society responds to this issue um, and the four um, kind of trends in the research that I'm gonna I'm gonna pull out are the move away from seeing migration linked to climate change as a simple relationship. So this is something Dina has touched on. uh, Towards an understanding of it as a a deeply complex (coughs) issue. The second trend in the research is a move away from studying uh, quote unquote climate migrants or climate refugees to trying to understand the forces that shape that movement rather than a focus on a kind of imagined group of people who are moving. The third trend is a move away from seeing um, migration as a security problem to seeing migration (coughs) as an adaptive response, It's the third trend. And the fourth trend is an issue around legal protection, around the rights um, of people who move and the trend there that I want to unpack and talk about how we respond to is a move away from seeing this whole topic as one that might be fixed with one big overarching international treaty towards one that might be better addressed through a series of smaller agreements or using um, existing, um, kind of emerging um, international areas of cooperation that are already there. So those are the four, those are the four things that I'm going to look at. <clears throat> if you look back over the last ten years, um, I think that one of the, the most famous pieces of research was, was this study done by, by, done by Norman Myers, and it's where this famous figure of 250 quote-unquote climate change refugees come from. And I think that is the sort of archetypal um, dinosaur, if you like, of, of this research area. Um, It imagined an incredibly simple relationship between uh, rising sea levels and the movement of people. It was literally take a map of the world, draw a line around the bits that you think are going to be uninhabitable, and then just assume that everyone's going to move, and not really say very much about the the circumstances in which those people move or where they're going to move to, or when, or whether it's actually climate change that is the driver of their movement, or whether it's something else that happens long before the water is lapping at the door. Um, So as as a campaigner, as an advocate, how do you respond to this change in the research away from this very very simple approach to one where the issue is viewed um, as a far more complex topic? Now, as a campaigner, simple, simple messages, simple relationships, simple A equals B research is really, really easy to deal with. Um, it's very easy if you can point to, um, you know, one thing that causes something bad and, and there you go, there's your campaign. Um, so I think what we've tried to do um, as, a, as, a, as a coalition of other organisations is, discourage um civil society from taking this easy route is to say look okay you can find bits of research that will support this very simple relationship if you want to but actually if we're going to be honest if we're going to do this properly we should acknowledge its complexity we should build that into our advocacy let's not let's not run from the fact that this is this is an incredibly complicated topic And this leads to the second uh, area, the second emerging piece of research, which is something that Dina touched on. There isn't a group that we are advocating for. There are no quote-unquote climate refugees. You can't say there is a defined group of people and our charity exists to help them. What you can say is there are people who have an environmental or a climatic dimension to their migration. Now again, as a campaigner, as as an advocate, that that's making your life harder. If if what you want is a is is a kind of easy fundraising appeal or a easy sign this petition and and solve the problem kind of campaign, not having a defined and distinct group of people who are the victims um, makes your makes your campaign more difficult. <clears throat> but it is the case that there there simply isn't that group. So. The way that we've responded to that, rather than um, just sort of throwing our hands up and going, "Well, there is there is no one that we're really working on behalf of," um, we've we've tried to respond to that by recording uh, the stories of people who do have this environmental dimension. So we're not saying these are climate migrants, we're not saying they're climate refugees, but we are saying that these people have a story, and in that story. Um, they will talk about the, un- the environmental and the climactic factors that have caused them to move. And actually those are very powerful stories. They're compelling, they're scary, they're, you know, they tell, um, they, they, they sort of paint a picture of the kinds of <coughs> different movement that, that Dina talked about. So some people do have really traumatic stories of, of being forced to move, but other people have stories where they really do see themselves as, as agents of, of adaptation and um, <clears throat> creating their own adaptive response to a situation. Um, so that's, that's how we've, if you like, sidestepped the issue that there isn't a single group of people that we, that we work for. The third trend in the research <clears throat> is a move away from seeing migration as a security problem, so I think if you look back maybe even three or four years ago to how the research was framed um, it was very much uh, even if there wasn't necessarily perceived a very simple connection between climate change and migration nonetheless the migrants, the people who moved were seen as a security threat, the narrative went okay, there are complex forces that cause people to move, but when they get there, this is going to create a security problem. Um, Pressure on resources, uh, kind of people moving from one area to another might be a cause of conflict, it might exacerbate existing conflicts. Um, It's going to create situations which require a securitized response. This This was the story. But more recently that has changed. It's still there as an agenda. It's still there um, being kind of written about. But there's been a real move away from, from that perspective. And I think that's incredibly helpful. And the reason I think that that, that narrative has, has started to crumble slightly is actually there isn't a huge amount of research that supports it. If you look. Um, if you look at areas with high levels of, of migration, these are not places where that migration has has caused an armed conflict. You actually struggle to pick out uh, situations in which you can say that the presence of people who've moved was the primary cause of, of armed violence. It's just, you just can't find them. It's even harder to find examples where you can say, here are people and the primary reason they've moved is climate change and when they moved it created a security situation that required <clears throat> some kind of military <coughs> response. So that just, that just isn't there. And what's replaced it, or what seems to be replacing it, is, is a narrative that sees um, migration uh, as a way of adapting to climate change, a way that people um, can respond to a changing environment uh, a way that, to some extent, they can be agents of their own, of their own adaptation. So this, for us, is, is positive. But it has also a couple of caveats. Um, the first one being that not everyone who moves and has this climate change dimension to, to their movement is an agent of their own adaptation. Lots of people are still displaced, forcibly, um, and <coughs> have no choice really about when they go or where they go to, it's simply a case of of moving to ensure their their immediate survival. So we need to remember that although some people, perhaps people who are um, experiencing slower onset, more slowly unfolding kinds of disasters, may be using migration as a way to adapt, but people who are hit by sudden onset hazards um, are still being forced to move, and we need to be careful that we don't uh, sort of paint everyone who, who has moved as, as an agent of their own adaptation because some, some of this movement is not adaptive, some of it is, is forced displacement. So that's, that sort of creates um, in the world of advocacy for us um, a kind of path that has to be negotiated quite carefully because on the one <coughs> hand, we do want to move away from this security narrative we want to move away from a narrative that sees human beings as a threat so the the migration as adaptation narrative is is extremely appealing but we then also need to remember in amongst that that not everyone is adapting the final trend and this is more um a trend in, in legal scholarship rather than in uh research about the relationship between migration and climate change itself and i think A number of years ago, um, it was was felt that the way to address this issue was with some kind of big global treaty, that the sense was that the issue that needed to be addressed was one of people crossing borders, and that because it involved citizens of one country crossing into another country, that it had to be addressed uh, at an international level which which is true to some extent but also and perhaps this was because of the research that was around at the time it was felt that people would be moving all over the world you know across continents from from one continent to another and that therefore the international arena in which this was addressed needed to involve every single country on the planet so something a bit like the UNF C process that that's trying to um, agree emissions reductions now What's happened over the last few years is a move away from that idea. A move away from the idea that one binding global treaty could, could provide a solution to this. And I think that's, that's the right, a move in the right direction because, actually, firstly, it's unlikely that large numbers of people are going to move across continents. That isn't, that isn't a pattern that's going to happen. A lot of the migration is going to be internal. Now, it doesn't mean that there shouldn't be an international uh, agenda focusing policy on it, but it does mean that a lot of the movement will be dealt with by by states, because it's their own citizens moving within their own country. That's not to say that there shouldn't be assistance, and it's not to say that there shouldn't be international agencies or even other countries assisting there, but nonetheless, that is a a sovereign issue for, for that country. Where there is cross-border movement, it's often to nearby countries. <coughs> in fact, it's almost always to neighbouring countries, countries that share a border, countries that um, <clears throat> you, know, you can move to without, without having to move far. So actually, a, a treaty that tries to involve every single country in the world becomes a very drawn-out, laborious process. Whereas actually, it might be that if what we're talking about is movement between two or three neighboring countries that can be dealt with by a series of bilateral agreements, um, small groups of countries negotiating um, how how they might deal with this regionally. The other trend has been away from thinking that whole new negotiations are needed. And I think the experience around the climate change negotiations has put a lot of people off the idea of beginning an entirely new process. It's dragged on for 20 years and there's been progress in some areas and not in others. Um, so there's a feeling that if, if the issue of migration and climate change could essentially kind of piggyback on, on one of the existing um, international negotiations that might be a help. So for example, there have been suggestions that by using several existing processes you might be able to make a kind of patchwork agreement that pretty much covers every area that, that you need to. So for example there are suggestions that uh, the replacement of the Hyogo framework, which is being negotiated in twenty fifteen, which is about how, how states cooperate over natural disasters should have something in it specifically addressing climate change, environment and displacement. The replacement to the Millennium Development Goals, there's an open question at the moment. Should there be a SDG, a Sustainable Development Goal, about migration? If there is, if there should be, could that be a place where migration linked to climate change is addressed? Thirdly, within the UNFCCC process that's going on in Lima at the moment, there is already negotiating text calling on states to, to consider migration and displacement linked to climate change. So there's a lot that can be achieved without having to set up an entirely new international process. So that pretty much wraps up my four research trends and how we respond to those as, as campaigners and